Hello and good morning, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Uh, SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And our guest today combines all those aspects into one into a fascinating uh, startup that's really democratizing access uh, to investment opportunities that have typically only been available to institutional investors. And what we're really trying to do during this SALT Talk series is to replicate the experience that we provide at our global uh, conference series, the SALT Conference, and that is to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And today we're, we're very pleased to welcome Ryan Williams to SALT Talks. Uh, Ryan is the co-founder and CEO of Cadre, uh, which is a technology platform providing individual investors with access to the kind of commercial real estate investment opportunities that were previously only available to institutional style investors. The company currently owns and manages about a $3 billion portfolio of properties. And to date, Cadre has delivered a net IRR of better than 18% on its portfolio realizations. Uh, it's a very unique company and Ryan is a unique founder. Uh, he grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he began his entrepreneurial career at the tender age of 14 when he founded a sports apparel company uh, that he later sold. He worked his way through Harvard and during his senior year at Harvard when the financial crisis hit, Ryan started a company that invested in single family distressed properties, mainly in the Southeast. Uh, like I said, his company acquired more than 500 properties, mainly in the Southeast United States. And as a part of building that business, he caught the attention of some of the major investment firms on Wall Street. And he joined uh, the telecom group at Goldman Sachs before moving on to the private equity real estate division of Blackstone. He then launched Cadre in 2014 and has built it into one of the leading uh, real estate technology startups today. He is about the same age as me, so I'm feeling very unaccomplished right about now. At 32 years old, Ryan has won widespread recognition as one of America's most promising young CEOs, appearing on the cover of Forbes magazine last year. He's described, he's described himself in the past as reticent to talk publicly about his experience as a black tech founder, but in the wake of the George Floyd incident this summer and subsequent protests uh, that followed that, he's emerged as a strong voice for economic and social justice. A reminder, if you have any questions for Ryan during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. He's also the chairman of SALT. And another quick anecdote that I'm sure they might get into during this conference, the chairman of the investment committee at Cadre, Mike Facitelli, once had the privilege at Goldman Sachs of firing Anthony. Uh, so I'm sure Ryan and Anthony can have a fun conversation about that. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Ryan, you see, you, 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 you're missing the sibling rivalry that's going on in here. Okay, so you had to just bring up the fact that Mike fired me. So at least the good news is when John Kelly fired me from the White House, Ryan, I was prepared for it because I had been fired once before. Okay? <laughs> there and, you go. Good training. And this, is, and this is a learning lesson to everybody out there. When you're getting fired by somebody, build a friendship. Mike's one of my best friends. Turns out that General Kelly and I have become very close as well. Uh, but I want to go to you, Ryan. You had an amazing career. I had the chance to see you speak at the Forbes 30 Under 30 up in Boston a few years ago. Obviously, you spoke at at our conference, but I haven't asked you this question. And I'm very curious about this because you are the classic entrepreneur and something happens in your childhood where the light bulb goes off 
and you're like, I'm going to run my own business. I'm going to build my own enterprise. And I want you to tell us when that was, where it was, when, when did that moment happen for you? Yeah. Well, thank you, Anthony, for, for having me. I'm, I'm really excited uh, to uh, spend some more time talking about uh, myself, but also about our business and what we've been up to. Um, you're right. You know, I, I've uh, thought a lot about, you know, what, uh, what drives me. I've thought a lot about when I kind of got on that entrepreneurial flywheel, so to speak, you know, and kind of going back, you know, to my childhood, I didn't, I didn't really grow up around a lot of money or frankly, had a lot of role models in, in the business world um, that, you know, provide a clear path to building my own business. Um, but I think what it was, was I've always chosen to see problems and challenges as opportunities. And, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had a family that um, definitely encouraged me to uh, think uh, about the, the what if and, um, and have this mentality of, of questioning the status quo, you know, asking why not. And so, you know, I think as a kid, I brought that mentality to, uh, to a lot of things that probably, you know, bothered my, uh, my family when I was really young. But as I, I, I grew a little bit older, you know, I started thinking about these personal pain points and challenges that I experienced and faced. And that's when that natural entrepreneurial streak began emerging. And the first business I ended up starting, uh, it started with that question, why? Why, why can't we, um, you know, change, you know, this situation. And the situation there was, um, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. I played sports. I didn't want to pay an exorbitant amount of money to buy a, a Nike or an Adidas headband and wristband when people still wore those things. And so I, I said, why can't I find a cheaper product? That uh, Ryan, some of us are still wearing those things. I just want to point that out to you. Okay. Go easy on the old folks here. Go ahead. It'll come back, Anthony, at some point. Yeah. I mean, everything does. Right. And so, but you know, what I said is I want to figure out a way where, you know, I can, um, you know, identify a lower cost product and actually have something that represents me. And a lot of people, I think, do take that leap from, okay, here's an issue to, all right, how do I change this issue? Not a lot of people take that next step forward to how do I bring that to life? And I think that's, you know, for me, that was the first time where I said, all right, I actually want to make this happen. I want to implement something different. I want to change the status quo. So I ended up going and speaking to a bunch of different uh, embroiderers uh, in uh, in the area. I went to effectively a version of the garment district like they have up here in the city. And I was able to buy these products, you know, 10%, 20% of what the retail stores were charging. Um, and initially it was just for myself. Eventually I started creating custom headbands and wristbands for, um, uh, you know, teammates and friends. Grew that business pretty significantly, won a bunch of awards, was able to exit that company and, um, and that gave me the confidence when I then was fortunate enough, you know, to get to Harvard. And again, with Harvard, uh, you know, I was told by a guidance counselor, no shot, you know, and again, I said, why not? You know, was, was fortunate to be accepted. And when I got there, that was like a playground of resources. It was a playground of opportunities. And, um, and I wouldn't have been able to launch, you know, the real estate business I started in 2008. Um, when again, I noticed there were all these foreclosed homes up and down it. My, my best friend and roommate street in Atlanta um, and said, why can't I, you know, invest in these areas and stabilize these communities? But I wouldn't have been able to get to that point had I not, when I was younger, um, you know, acknowledge that I had this mentality of, you know, looking at challenges as opportunities, but then taking the step, building the confidence, building that muscle. Um, and I think, again, the essence of entrepreneurship is about 
you know, how you view the world and then, you know, being willing to, uh, to take risk. I mean, you've done it in your career, Anthony, as well. And, and I think, you know, as you build that, that muscle, you know, of, of risk taking and fearlessness, you know, it, um, it kind of builds on itself. And, um, and I'm fortunate again to be in a position now where we're running, um, you know, the leading real estate tech platform for individual investors. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a conventional founder or CEO, um, but I built up a lot of that, I think, resiliency um, from an early age. Well, I mean, I think it's a tribute to you, but I think that there's a resilience that uh, you need to get to where you are. And there's also a level of projection that you need as well, which we, which we try to teach people that are aspiring entrepreneurs that you have to believe in yourself. And, uh, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a 21 year old son in the music industry. So you got to act 31, man. You can't <laughs> act 21, get right. your brain on 31. And so right. uh, I really appreciate what you're doing and I, I admire you. Um, talk about Cadre for a second. Let's give the high concept. Let's pretend that people uh, with us today uh, don't know Cadre, uh, which is a phenomenal country and a, a co- company, and I want to get get them to know it. Uh, give us the uh, elevator pitch on Cadre. Sure. Yeah, Cadre was was founded um, almost six years ago, and I founded it really to lower the barriers of entry to institutional real estate. Um, you know, commercial real estate is one of the most important asset classes to own to build long-term wealth. Um, but it's also one of the most opaque, expensive, and illiquid asset classes as well. And what I saw is that, you know, from my time at Blackstone, there was just so much wealth being created, but being created for technically sovereign wealth funds, you know, nothing wrong with sovereigns, we love sovereigns, but uh, it was a very small subset of our global economy. And most individuals were just, you know, significantly underallocated, had no idea how to get into alternatives. And um, I believe, you know, from my own personal experience, is never being anywhere near this asset class growing up, um, that I was uniquely equipped to build a platform and a model that would unlock access you know, to institutional real estate, allow more people to invest with transparency, efficiency, and liquidity. And so that's what I decided to do with, with Cadre. Through technology, we've been able to create a platform where individual investors can go online, invest in... Uh, an individual real estate asset, an office building, uh, or multifamily property, or a portfolio of real estate investments. Uh, and so, you know, in summary, what we're doing is making real estate investments more accessible through, you know, a pretty frictionless technology interface. We're an investment platform that prides ourselves on our vetting process, uh, and we're allowing, you know, thousands of individuals and institutions to be able to invest in real estate with the click of a button. And we think this is the future of how people will be accessing real estate and other alternatives. And, you know, the goal is to make alternatives less alternative. So, so Charles Schwab has this advertisement. They talk about stock slices where you, for $5, you can buy a little bit of Amazon, a little bit of Facebook and so forth. Is, is, is Cadre a little bit like that? Like, let's say I had $5,000 and I wanted to sort of own a sliver of commercial real estate. Is that something I can do through Cadre? Yeah, that same concept. So, so effectively what we do is we allow yeah, people to, if they want to pick and choose, you know, thousands of dollars, they can invest in an individual asset or millions. And we've had people, Goldman Sachs put it in more than 250 million into their own portfolio of real estate. Um, uh, but you can pick or, and this is what we recommend to folks, you can invest in a diversified manner because the reality is like, in, you know, the equity markets, most individuals shouldn't be picking and choosing uh, and I think you know, you've seen that with, with a lot of the recent market volatility. 
And so we allow people to basically build a custom curated portfolio of real estate that we diversify at Cadre. Um, you know, we got Mike as our chairman of our investment committee, Alan Smith, our president, who was formerly president CEO of Four Seasons and Prudential, Dan Rosenblum led acquisitions at Jim in Chicago. So we have that in-house team that's doing the vetting, the underwriting. We have a backstop. So, uh, you know, we've raised a couple hundred million dollars and it's been reported that it's, you know, the Soros um, fund that's given us that backstop. And, uh, and that allows us to guarantee the funding of deals. Um, and then investors can get access. And really, Anthony, it's like 10 to 15 properties, geography diversification, asset class diversification, operator diversification. And we want to make, you know, investing in diversified real estate as simple, straightforward and frictionless as investing, you know, in a portfolio of stocks um, or an ETF. So, so, so it's, a, it's a brilliant idea. And uh, the good news is you've got all the technology now and the resources to apply this idea to the marketplace. Uh, but tell us about the post-COVID situation. Uh, what's your view of the real estate market in a post-COVID-19 environment? And how has the pandemic affected investment opportunities? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, we're, we don't uh, purport to have the, the, uh, the answers to everything. Um, we can only speak from our experience and what we're seeing in, you know, data, frankly, as well. I think the first point is um, we spent a better part of the last, call it six months, very focused on our portfolio of real estate. So we own more than 3 billion uh, real estate around the country, more than 15 markets around the country, primarily multifamily. So a lot of workforce housing, some affordable, you know, a few class A assets. Um, that's the bulk of what we own. Um, and then it's office, a little hotel, um, and then, you know, some development as well in, in kind of that order. And we, uh, we needed to make sure that everything we own was performing well, that we didn't have any issues on you know, debt, we didn't have any issues with working capital at the properties, uh, and that we had good collections. And we're not declaring victory yet, but we are saying that we've been pretty pleased with how resilient our portfolio has been. Our, our multifamily is north of 95% occupancy, offices around that same level, even our hotels are starting to bounce back. And I say that to say, um, you know, it's incredibly important when you're investing that you're, you're doing so in a prudent manner, in a diversified manner. You have a great team, just like in the stock market, a good management team can drive out performance in real estate as well. And I think that's something that's paid off for us to date. So as we came to this conclusion that our portfolio is performing well, we're, you know, delivering cash flow to our investors, yield, et cetera, we said, all right, let's start looking forward because, you know, we all know that in these periods of dislocation, some of the most compelling opportunities can emerge. Some of the most, um, you know, unique investments can emerge. And where do we think those opportunities will be? And so what we've aligned on and we announced a few days ago is, you know, we're launching a new real estate portfolio um, investment opportunity for folks who log on to cadre.com. Uh, we're focused on building a diversified portfolio in the asset classes we think will be winners. And we're staying away from the asset classes we think will be losers. So where do we think there are going to be winners? Um, you know, first, from an asset class perspective, multifamily, you know, we, we've seen it with our own portfolio. Rates are at an all-time low. Um, people are always going to need somewhere to stay. Uh, a lot of people aren't really willing, you know, to, um, to pay the cost to move and to, you know, to find other opportunities. So they're renewing at all-time high rates. 
Um, and, you know, I think the, the other reality is, you know, just cap rates are continuing to compress in the space in the right markets. The second asset class we like that we think will be relatively defensive is industrial. You know, and this was happening pre-COVID, but, you know, e-commerce has accelerated in light of COVID, um, you know, the, uh, um, the growth in, in industrial as more people need, you know, warehouse space, logistics, et cetera. Um, and so we're going to be focused on some industrial assets as well. And then finally, we like select niche office. And this might be a little bit contrarian, just given what you hear in the news and read. Um, but the reality is that, you know, there are office markets, especially suburban office markets that are seeing increased occupancy. Um, a lot of people are setting up satellite shops in, you know, for instance, the Greenwich, Connecticut's of the world, which were in many ways markets that were deteriorating pre-COVID. And there's some niche strategies in office like life sciences where there's tremendous tailwinds that we're also focused on. We're staying away from retail. We're staying away from central business district office investments a la New York City. And we're staying away from full service hotels that really require and rely on uh, travel. And, um, and so, you know, that's how we see the market playing out. In terms of timeline for recovery, it's going to vary based off of the course of this virus, you know, our government's collective will in addressing this um, quickly and, um, and then distributing, you know, vaccines and the like. But we're not expecting, for instance, in a hotel, any kind of meaningful recovery, you know, until 2022 timeframe um, at the earliest. And in retail, I think it's still a falling knife. Um, and so you've got to be really selective. There are winners in real estate, despite what you hear in terms of, you know, just the, the distress. A lot of that's in those losing kind of asset classes we focused on. And then the other big dimension is markets. You know, we've developed something called a cadre 15, which is a data science uh, driven proprietary market ranking system of the top 15 markets in the country as of last week. Um, these are markets where we think there's unique growth, unique affordability, uh, and through quantitative and some qualitative analysis, we've identified these markets. They're markets like Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, um, Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte, Tampa, Orlando, markets where there's, again, a unique combination of population growth, job growth. We even can look at millennial inflow and outflow. And, and that's how we invest the asset classes we think are winners and the top growth markets. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Charlotte because uh, if John Dorsey keeps picking on me, Ryan, you're going to help me find a house for him in Charlotte. Okay, we're moving back. You got it. Okay. You got it. Count All us right, thank you. I, may, I need to help on that. Okay. <laughs> He picks on me. He picks on me, Ryan. So I heard it in the intro. Yeah, it was yeah unbelievable. But yeah. let me let me go to Cadre Cash for a second. Sure. Um, because I think this is an amazing thing. Uh, it's an account that earns interest well in excess of the traditional banks. Explain to people how you're doing that. Explain the safety around that and uh, why this is another exciting, right? Another exciting asset class in a low interest rate environment. Yeah, we, um, we launched Cadre Cash a, a few days ago. You know, I'd say it's probably our most significant product to date, given this current low yield, low growth, high volatility market. And um, I think all three of those trends are, are uh, going to be in play for the foreseeable future, especially with the guidance we've gotten from the Fed on rates. And so we decided- so what, kind of, what kind of yields are you getting for people? Yeah, so we're, we're providing investors an FDIC insured 3% uh, reward on their cash, which is, you know, more than 60 times the national APY. Um, we're providing investors as well with access to a real estate investment 
uh, portfolio that they can participate in as well. So the idea was when you invest with Cadre, when you sign up, you become a user on our platform, you automatically become eligible for this 3% uh, reward savings account uh, where you know, you're able to earn that 3% on the cash that you say you're gonna invest in the real estate on our platform, but also you know, we basically give you a credit you know, for whatever that kind of total commitment amount is. So an example is you come to the platform, you say, look, I wanna, I wanna get a portfolio uh, where I invest across 10 assets and I put $50,000 you know, um, you know, into uh, growth-oriented defensive real estate. We'll say, great, got it. You're, we'll open a cadre cash account for you. You deposit that $50,000, start earning 3% on that $50,000. As we fund from that account into your real estate portfolio, you can then add more cash to get back to your initial $50,000 balance. Um, and we wanted to go out with a 3% rate because you know, we just felt like today, um, given where rates are, and frankly, given just the overall alternatives for folks, it's hard to get yield. It's hard to get that kind of return without taking a lot of outsized risk and volatility. And, and that was really our focus was to ensure that investors got, you know, that return on their capital at a time when people need it more than ever, while also getting access to a defensive portfolio that's a hedge in many ways to the equity market volatility. And so it's, uh, we've seen tremendous demand for the product. You know, people can sign up. It is a limited time offering, um, you know, it's cadre.com backslash cash. And, you know, we're excited about what it'll mean for people's financial future. That's what we're always anchored on. How do we let more people have access to quality investments that will drive their futures forward? So it's, it's really um, powerful product and one we think will actually expand our reach even further for more individuals. Well, congratulations on that. Just say it again. It's Cadre Cash. Cadre.com. Backslash cash. That's right. Cadre.com backslash cash for people that are interested. Before I turn it over to John, who's got, we got a tremendous uh, audience participation, lots of questions. I want to talk about the George Floyd incident for a second, because uh, as an African-American, Black entrepreneur, you've got a diversity issue, social issues, economic justice. You're reticent to do that. And I admire that, by the way, because you basically just want to be a person. Like Dr. King said, you want to be judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin. But yet we do have this racial tension in our society and the George Floyd uh, incident and other incidents for those men, other tragic incidents has caused you to speak out a little bit. So I just wonder if you could Tell us about the tipping point there and what advice do you have for people in terms of thinking about these issues and how, how can we work together to improve our society? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for asking Anthony. And yeah, you're right. Look, it's, it's been a, it's been a challenging time. Uh, you, you have this, this dynamic where, um, you know, the, the kind of COVID pandemic has just laid bare some really, ugly realities for, for many people in our country. And, um, you know, and reckoning and acknowledging that it, it's painful. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, for me, I've navigated my own personal challenges. I can empathize with a lot of the pain and frustration that, you know, you see and you hear. And I just felt like I had an obligation um, as an African-American founder and CEO, um, you know, to do what I can to help 
personalize some of what people are seeing and hearing, especially folks in, you know, the, the bubbles that I, you know, kind of exist in today, you know, and bubbles being real estate and technology, two relatively homogenous um, industries. And so, <clears throat> as you mentioned, I, I was a lot more willing to be outspoken, but not just with problems, but with ideas and solutions as well. And I think that's what it's really going to take now that, you know, everyone has seen what they've seen on TV. Um, everyone saw, um, you know, George Floyd's life be taken from him. Everyone saw the subsequent anger and frustration on all sides. And um, I think now the idea is like, okay, what do we do to uh, build a more perfect union? And I think we all can start with our own homes, so to speak, uh, our own organizations, our own, um, you know, networks. And, and you know, I think for, for us at Cadre, what we've said is, look, let's start with our organization. We, we want to build a more inclusive organization. Right now, more than 50% of our management team are women or people of color. You know, that's great. You know, let's make sure that throughout the whole organization, uh, we have a representative company. Uh, and I think a lot of the commitments on the company side are great. We need more diversity. Um, but what I would do is I would, I would push companies to, to think about what they can do with their platforms, you know, with their networks, with their ecosystems, um, you know, with their, their resources. For me and, you know, for, for Cadre, what I've realized is we have, you know, a platform with the mission of expanding access you know, leveling the playing field, allowing more people to invest in an asset class that's been pretty inaccessible to date. Um, and, you know, we can use that platform and we can use that mission to extend, um, you know, and increase access opportunity for more people, um, especially those who have been underserved. And so what we've done at Cadre is said, okay, let's go above and beyond um, using our platform Let's think about how do we create a more inclusive form of capitalism that's sustainable, um, because what we're seeing right now in this world is, is not sustainable. Um, and, you know, let's focus on driving capital into underserved communities. Let's focus on ensuring that our ecosystem is inclusive and representative as possible. And so what we've specifically said is we're making some firm, explicit commitments. One, we are going to do everything in our power to ensure that the operating partners that we work with and our real estate investments um, are more diverse. So we've made, you know, commitments of at least 10%. We want to be closer to 20% of the operating partners we work with being underrepresented minorities. Anthony, I think you could probably count on two hands the number of, let's just say, black operators in real estate that have invested more than, you know, 50 million of equity. Um, I, I can only think of four, frankly, right now. Needless to say, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of others who have done that. And we think, again, there's opportunities to be had in markets that are underserved with partners who haven't been backed and capitalized. But that's one thing uniquely leveraging our platform. The second is um, let's be more open working with minority depository institutions, MDIs. You know, we've heard about how undercapitalized a lot of these community banks are. Um, and by the way, these community banks don't just serve you know, black and Latino communities. I mean, these are, you know, communities that socioeconomically are disadvantaged. And so I think that if you can help include some of these banks that have been left on the outside looking in, in transactions, 
Deposits as well, which is great. And people have talked about that, but transactions is really where you can create a multiplier effect on capital. Um, then you're going to help again, elevate the least among us and reduce a lot of the pain economically we're seeing today. And so we said, we're going to commit to a threshold um, for all of our go forward deals to work with minority depository institutions that have been undercapitalized and underserved. And then I think the final thing for us is really about building coalitions. Um, I was pleased to work with um, John Stein, CEO of Betterment, founder, CEO of Betterment, and a handful of around 45, 50 fintech companies um, on the fintech equity coalition that was announced about a month ago or so, where, you know, it's not just one company. It's not just, you know, me and Ryan and, you know, as, as a CEO, founder, co-founder of Cadre, it's let's build an alliance of other companies with similar missions from all walks of life, you know, to ensure that this is as impactful as possible um, and that we reach as many people as possible and that we're helping promote greater equality of opportunity. Uh, and I think with those collective efforts, a lot of good will come, a lot of change will come, but I would just say it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be a, a monumental um, action that you take in order to have impact. It can be as simple as having a conversation, acknowledging you don't know where to get started. For instance, if you want to increase your pipeline from a diversity perspective, um, because you know what we're seeing again, it's not sustainable. And just the final point I would make is, um, I do, and I'm optimistic about this, I do believe there's a real opportunity for um, investors to do well financially and to do good as well. For a long time, we've had these different buckets you know, of, of returns. You got your financial IRR in kind of your impact oriented uh, return threshold. And, you know, our view is, um, you know, we're at a point, as you know, where our country's never been more divided, our world's increasingly divided. Um, you know, the haves and the have nots have never been further apart. And it's not sustainable right now. And it's not good for anybody uh, to, uh, to kind of look the other way and ignore, you know, the pain that's being surfaced from those um, who haven't had access to opportunity. And so I think as a, uh, as a platform, as a leader, my obligation is to make sure that one, you know, we're, we're executing on our business plan, but we're thinking more holistically about all the stakeholders um, that coexist, you know, in our, in our world. And those stakeholders are increasingly community. And so, you know, as we look to diversify, and focus on positive societal change vis-a-vis -vis our investments, I think there will be this cycle um, where, you know, society and the least among us are elevated and have greater access to opportunity. Um, communities and neighborhoods around the country, uh, especially those underserved, um, become more prosperous. And the long-term effects, the long-term returns and IRRs of this um, will be uh, significantly greater because there'll be less volatility, there will be less unrest, there will be less turbulence, um, and more stability and more equity. And I think that's all that, you know, folks are, are looking for is, you know, give me a shot, let me compete, you know, give me, you know, a, a more of a level playing field. And companies today can no longer ignore those, please. You know, the, the cries that we're hearing have to awaken us, we can't keep hitting snooze. And I am optimistic for what it's worth, um, that there's a lot of collective will, um, especially in private sector to drive great enduring change that's sustainable. Well, I think it's beautiful and very well said. And I, you know, I, I, what, I, what I appreciate more than just what you're saying or the actions that you're taking. And so it's a, uh, 
it's an incentive for all of us, Ryan. I'm going to turn it over to John, who's got a series of questions for you uh, from our audience. But uh, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. And Ryan, I thought your last answer was very well said, and I want to build on that a little bit. There's really two forms of racism that exist. There's the overt, in-your-face type of racism, and then there's sort of the nimbyism, not-in-my-backyard type of attitude that you see in a lot of major cities and even you know, left-leaning cities that are generally thought of as more uh, receptive to minorities. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about affordable housing and about how you think you can do well and do good with a variety of different investments today. We've had other guests on previously, people like Steve Case, people like Mark Cuban, Afsani Beshlas, talking about how they think affordable housing is a tremendous investment opportunity that also happens to have an impact component built into it. What's your view on affordable housing in general? And how can we, you know, there's, there's a real dearth of quality housing around major cities. How do we fix that? And what do you think of it from an investment perspective? Yeah, no, great, great question, great point. First, you know, it, it's uh, no one can argue that we have a shortage of affordable housing in our country today. So there's a, a clear macro um, case for increasing the supply of affordable. You can't say the same thing for other asset classes. You can't say the same thing for office, especially in some of the larger markets. You can't say the same thing for hotel, especially full service. You definitely can't say the same thing for retail. So I think the first point is, there, there's definitely a, a mismatch and the, um, there's some asymmetry between supply and demand of affordable housing. So you check that box. Okay, macro investment theme can make sense. The next question really is, um, you know, what are the right markets to be investing um, in affordable housing? And uh, how do you bring together, you know, the public and private sectors in those markets to ensure that, you know, there's, again, more inclusive capitalism, that there's positive revitalization of communities, not gentrification happening with a little pocket of affordable housing. And I do think that um, there is an increasing focus from investors, LPs, allocators uh, on that very dynamic. And they're willing increasingly, and we hear it because we have investors reach out to us. Uh, and re recently in particular, we hear it from investors that, you know, they're willing to think differently about, um, you know, the business plans, the return profiles, um, within reason, of course, and the hold periods. And so I think if you can identify high growth markets, uh, affordable markets, create partnerships between private public sectors, which is a lot, sounds a lot easier than it actually is. Um, I actually think that there's almost this arbitrage opportunity from an investing standpoint, just because affordable housing has been underinvested historically. Um, but there has to be the right incentives, again, from a public-private perspective. I think we've seen that there are a lot of programs where the spirit of the program uh, is good, but the actual execution is not. And I attribute that, again, to not having uh, this, the right balance, you know, between the private sort of uh, incentives and the public incentives. Um, the other thing I would just say is that there are definitely a lot of operating partners, sponsors, developers that I've spoken with that if the capital was there, you know, they would be building and developing affordable housing at, at scale. And so I also think there's an untapped, untapped operating partner pool um, and, and management team pool, especially among more diverse operators and managers who really know the communities um, that a lot of the affordable housing will be developed. So, so I think if you can create almost this, this um, uh, kind of investment uh, life cycle where at every single point, you know, you're ensuring that the stakeholders 
uh, are aligned with the mission, they have the right incentives, and you're picking the right markets, the macro story here makes sense. Uh, at Cadre, we've done a little bit of affordable housing. We've done a lot in workforce housing, um, but we're increasingly focused on affordable housing, finding opportunities that we think um, you know, fit within the markets we're focused on um, and working to structure partnerships, public-private. But I definitely think it's one of those asset classes in the scheme of everything going on would be defensive, could actually drive outsized returns because of the dearth of capital in the space today um, and also you know, can clearly do good. Have you thought about, you know, you talked about different programs that have existed from a public policy perspective that have you know, sometimes failed in their mission despite having, you know, a good spirit within the legislation. Have you thought about what type of incentives, you know, from a public policy perspective would drive the type of investment that you'd like to see in, in underserved communities? Yeah, you know, I, I've thought a bit about it. Um, what I would say is that to me, um, there's a lot of different ways you can skin the cat. And there's a lot of different ways that you could um, incentivize, you know, uh, developers, sponsors, and investors. And we've seen a lot of it. Look at the Opportunity Zone program uh, in terms of, you know, capital gains being deferred and then, you know, ultimately subset, a part of that being eliminated. Uh, we've seen, you know, different tax credits. So the economics of it, I'm not as focused on because I think that's relatively straightforward. I think the bigger issue um, is there's not, and there, I haven't seen in, in really many cases, a, uh, a sustained and ongoing set of incentives, checks and balances. What I mean is, you know, let's take the Opportunity Zone program. You, you put the capital in, um, as an investor, you know, you're now able to defer, you know, gains and then on any appreciation above your initial basis, you can eliminate those gains. Um, but that's like a one and done deal. Now, the developer, the operator, they've got to abide by, you know, the hold periods, et cetera. What if there were ongoing incentives um, based off of things like, um, you know, community impact, right? You could figure out some kind of metric based off of, you know, diversity of the tenant base, um, based off of, um, you know, the, uh, the turnover, you know, in the properties themselves, so that you're thinking about this in more of a long-term way, not a one-time, let me see if, you know, I can uh, benefit economically and then make sure that I get my money back 10 years from now. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's been missing in a lot of recent policy, a lot of recent structures is how do you create almost these different tiers of incentives above and beyond the initial that align with the long-term development and inclusion of these communities. Um, and I think, you know, if, if folks could um, come with some ideas related to, uh, you know, how do we ensure that the missions of these programs are, are um, uh, kind of delivered over the course of the whole period, not just, you know, one time up front and you move on, um, then there'd be greater accountability and there'd be greater alignment with actually ensuring that positive societal impact and inclusion is delivered. And, and there are models and there are examples that I've seen where, um, you know, you, you're changing, for instance, uh, in a shopping center uh, tenant base, right? You're taking out in, for instance, in, in my hometown of Baton Rouge, I was speaking with, um, you know, a, a local official there recently about, you know, swapping out a liquor store in a retail strip center for, you know, a Starbucks or a Whole Foods. And the kind of change that that would create almost even in the mentality of many of these communities in terms of what the access is. And, you know, that's something that 
you know, those kinds of changes where you're repositioning, but still including the community in the progress and development aren't hard to do. You just need, you know, the right incentives, you need the right accountability, uh, and you need a long-term orientation on making sure that every year, every month, these communities, these investments are uh, bringing forth the intended mission and that all the stakeholders, public, private, and otherwise are aligned on an ongoing basis, not just one time. So one last question before we let you go. You started Cadre and you democratize primary access to real estate, but you've also more recently developed a robust secondary market on the Cadre platform for real estate. You know, one of the things that discourages people from investing in real estate in the first place is the illiquidity factor. Why do you think it's important for healthy financial markets, in this case, a healthy you know, secondary market for commercial real estate? Why is that important for the development of that market? And what type of positive impact does that have on returns and, and just outcomes in communities? Yeah. First thing, I guess, to take a step back, when I started Cadre, I said, why are so many individuals under allocated to alternatives into real estate? And there were two reasons, I believe. One was a lack of efficient, low fee access. And the second was a lack of liquidity. Um, on the low fee efficient access, we created a technology interface with a great institutional investing team. So people can log on with the click of a button, pay, you know, significantly lower fees than traditional real estate PE firms. And we've delivered on that. We've executed on that. The liquidity dimension was a lot more challenging, but I also thought if we could crack that code on building a secondary market, we would give more individuals confidence and comfort in investing in real estate because they knew if, you know, there are market dislocations like we saw, you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, or things like we're seeing recently with, with COVID, they'd have the optionality to get out. They want to be prone to market swings without the ability to get liquidity. For individuals, it's a lot more important in many ways than institutions because they don't have the same balance sheets, the same assets. And so um, we spent the better part of the first three years just working on legal regulatory, making sure that you know, we could actually provide fractional liquidity for investors in both properties and in portfolios to the extent they wanted to sell. We spent the first few years testing the concept, building prototypes, um, spending some time with folks who would serve as backstops, almost market makers. And about two and a half years ago, we formally launched our secondary marketplace successfully. And the idea is, you know, we want individuals on a quarterly basis to be able to sell um, at more efficient pricing levels than, uh, you know, the uh, real estate secondaries funds um, charge, right? Where you're getting massive discounts because there's no symmetry of information. Buyers and sellers don't have the same information. So you're basically baking in some kind of um, opacity discount uh, into your investing. And I think you know, in many ways we've delivered on that. We've closed hundreds of trades on our secondary marketplace for hundreds of individual investors. Pricing generally been within a few hundred basis points of the latest third party valuation. Um, and I think as a result, we've given people just an extra degree of comfort that if they need, these aren't people kind of high frequency trading or otherwise, they can get out without the pain associated with a real estate, private equity funds, illiquidity dimension. Um, and, I, and I think what's exciting is you can see a world where we take this proprietary first ever direct secondary market for real estate and apply it to other assets, you know, other real estate holdings other alternatives over time. So let's say, you know, there's an office landlord in New York, great building, 
um, but they've been struggling. You know, tenant base is 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 not coming back anytime soon. Uh, there's a lot of headwinds uh, in terms of the cost to reopen. They need some level of liquidity. They need to sell a 20% interest in their building of their asset. Well, we've built a secondary marketplace that connects uh, owners and operators and their holdings to thousands of investors around the world. And we could effectively start unlocking liquidity in real estate assets and making it a more liquid um, asset class than it is today. And, and I think what the outcome will be is there'll be more people comfortable um, with dipping their toe and getting involved in this space, more institutions comfortable to the extent there are you know, major market corrections. And ultimately, I believe, change a paradigm in real estate from one of opacity and illiquidity to transparency and liquidity, which I think is better for, for everybody. Yeah, and as you talked about, there's no shortage of developers who have identified great projects in terms of things like affordable housing, but there's a lack of capital. If you can create a robust secondary market, it makes more people more comfortable putting capital into the space and it just drives capital in general. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. I might have to log on to cadre.com here in a few minutes yeah. and, and put some money to work, but it's a, it's a fascinating concept. Congratulations on building a great business, the tremendous team you've put together and all the impact you're having in communities as well. Anthony, you have a final word? Oh, I'm, I'm going to be looking for a house in Charlotte, uh, Ryan, so I'm expecting you to help me, okay? I mean, you I'm know, there for you. You yeah, tell me where to This guy, tries, uh, like this guy tries to bury me on every salt talk, you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you have any I'm retirement looking, communities but... in your portfolio, Ryan, that we could find Anthony a home that he could, right. you know, it's, it's live out his, his later it, years? It, it, it's relentless, Ryan. Okay, next <laughs> n- next week, Ryan Williams will be joining me as the co-host of Salt Talks on a going forward basis. John God be, willing, he'd do a way John better will job be reporting than me, on assignment sure. from Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> Ryan, thanks wow. very much. You, Thank you're, you you're both. terrific. We look forward to following your career. We hope, hope you'll come back. And of course, Thank you. love to have you at one of our live events. Can't wait for it. Thank you both, right. guys. I appreciate Be well. it. Bye-bye. Okay.